My name is Mike Quarles. Uh, I'm the director of the Recovery Ministry for Freedom in Christ Ministries, and uh, pleasure and a privilege to be here with you today and to share with you. Let's uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the incredible truth that your truth does set us free. And if Christ sets us free, we're free indeed. We thank you, Lord, that you have done everything necessary for every child of God to be free in Christ. And Lord, I just pray for each person that's here today that uh, you would open the eyes of their heart that they might know the hope to which they've been called, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and your incomparably great power for each one of us who believe. Lord, I pray that that every person that's sitting here just... uh, might be able to receive all that you have for them in this session and the following ones, uh, uh, regardless of whether they agree with everything or not, Lord, that you would just administer by your Spirit the truth to each person here. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As I share my story this afternoon, uh, you know, it's not just to share a testimony or to, you know, some great wondrous story. of course, every testimony of freedom is uh, when, you know, I love uh, to hear Stuart share his story about how God set him free. But uh, really what we want to concentrate on is as I share my testimony, as my wife will come and share hers, is on the truth that sets us free. You know, God has different ways of bringing each of us to the point where we can you know, believe that truth. And we can, you know, do business with God. We can, you know, place our faith in the finished work of Christ and begin to receive what he has for us. But in the final analysis, it is the truth that sets us free. Did you hear about the guy who uh, didn't want to get up and go to church? His mother came in, walked him up and says, you have got to get up and go to church. He said, I don't want to go to church He says, I don't like church. I don't like those people down there. Those people don't like me. I'm not going to church. You give me one good reason, I ought to go to church. She says, I'll give you two good reasons. She said, number one, you're 40 years old, and number two, you're the pastor of the church. Well, that was sort of a a brief testimony of mine as I was in the pastorate. uh, I didn't like people down there. They didn't like me. Well, it really wasn't that bad. But the problem was that I was struggling so badly in my personal life. I wasn't drinking, but I, I knew I was a failure. I, I knew uh, that I was just failing miserably. My marriage was going down the drain, and I just would hate to get up there in the pulpit and try to preach the gospel to those people and share truth with them. Have you ever waked up in a strange place and not known where you were? Don't raise your hand. It happened to me one time. I woke up in this place, didn't know where I was. I was laying in a bed, still had all of my clothes on. I looked down, my shirt was bloody, torn, my pants were badly scuffed and torn. My shirt was bloody. I looked around the room, it was just a small room with one straight wooden chair in the room, the 
Walls were painted a dirty gray. Paint was flecking off the wall. And I tried to sit up in my bed, and I couldn't. I was just jerked back down because I was handcuffed to the bed with rigid leather straps. And I started, I started screaming out, Where am I? Where am I? What's going on here? Two ladies in white uniforms rushed in the room and says, Calm down. Be quiet. Be quiet. And I said, Where am I? What's going on here? They said, Mr. Quarles, you're in the uh, Cooper Green Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama, place where they drag in the drunks, the winos, the homeless people off the streets. I said, well, well, what am I doing here? I said, I want to go home. They said, you can't go home. The Birmingham police have a hold on you. I said, why? What did I do? They said, we don't know, but uh, the police will be by a little bit later to pick you up. Well, I began to think back. I could not remember anything that had happened after about midnight. I had uh, left my office where I was uh, the manager of a brokerage firm in Birmingham, and I'd gone to pick up some suits I'd had altered, and I thought, well, you know, I've got a new convertible. I'm just going to drive around and enjoy the nice weather here, and, you know, maybe I'll just have a few beers while I do that, and I ended up at the uh, down. Down, the bar at the downtown Hilton, I closed that up, I got on the elevator, went up to the parking deck, and I got in my car, and that's the last thing I remember. had no recollection from probably 12, 1 o'clock to about 6 o'clock in the morning. And then I thought, oh my gosh, have I driven somewhere and killed someone? Because the last thing I could remember was going to my car. Well, some of you will understand what I just described was a blackout. As far as I know, it's the only time I ever experienced it in my life, although I've had some people that said they lived for years in a blackout. But um, it's actually been documented by uh, secular people that uh, men have flown combat missions in a blackout. Um, people have actually uh, performed surgery in a blackout. That's kind of scary. <laughs> and people have actually murdered people in a blackout. Uh, basically, a blackout is when your your mind just kind of shorts out and you have no recollection of what you're doing, but you continue ostensibly to, to function, you know, in a normal way. Well, as it turned out, I was very fortunate and that the only thing that the police were picking me up for it was disorderly conduct. I never, uh, well, actually public drunkenness. I never made it out of the uh, parking lot. And you may be sitting there thinking, you know, why was I in this situation? Normally reserved for bums, winos, street people. Well, at the time, I had uh, been a Christian for 15 years. I was the manager of a brokerage office uh, in Birmingham, making good money. Uh, I was also a seminary graduate and a former pastor. Uh, supposedly, I was a committed Christian who wanted my life to count for Christ, and I really did. I remember a little bit later that morning, the uh, policeman came by and he picked me up, and as I crawled into the back of a policeman's car, he said, uh, Mr. Quarles, you don't look like the kind of guy that'd be out at night doing this. He said, why do you do it? Good question, right? You know, I, I couldn't answer that question. I had thought before 
you know, is there ever a time that I went out drinking that I enjoyed it so much that I would want to repeat it? And I couldn't think of a single time. Why did I keep on doing it? Well, we'll take a look at that tomorrow. But you see, bondage doesn't respond to common sense and logic and clear thinking, does it? You know, you can't just go up to a person and say, hey, as Neil said, that's sin, stop doing it. We know that. People know that. But if it's bondage, they can't make a reasonable, rational decision to stop doing it, can they? Well, how do you get to that point in your life? Uh, I know that uh, I grew up in a dysfunctional family just like the rest of you. Of course, some of them are more dysfunctional than others. Um, the biggest thing about my family life that, that I remember that was, I guess, the most dysfunctional is my mom and dad fought all the time, sometimes violently. And they never showed any love for each other. In fact, I can remember my mom after my dad died, and he did become a Christian right before he died, but she said, you know, I don't remember one good day with your father. Not one? I mean, you were married over 40 years. Well, <clears throat> we all come into this world with two basic needs. We have a need to be loved and accepted, we have a need to have worth and value in our life. God made us that way. And, and those are God-given basic needs that will only be met through a, relation, a relationship with God through Christ. He's the only one that can meet those needs. And yet, we come into this world, we don't have a relationship with God, so we go about trying to meet those needs the best way that we can, right? We have to. I mean, we, we want to be special. I mean, we need to be loved and accepted. And so, you know, we try the different things. I remember in high school that, uh, you know, most of my friends were on the, uh, <clears throat> were very athletically inclined and did very well. Uh, so I went out for all of the sports teams. I made a couple of them, but, uh, you know, the coach would maybe put me in the basketball game if we were 20 points ahead with two minutes left, you know, so I didn't get a whole lot of worth and value or acceptance out of that. Uh, you know, two of my friends had motorcycles. I thought, man, if I just had a motorcycle, I would really be something. <laughs> well, my parents weren't fixing to give me a motorcycle. I tried to get a good-looking girlfriend, but that never worked out. And when we were graduating from high school, my two best friends and I decided that we would go out and celebrate by getting drunk. Now, we'd experimented with beer a little bit, but we'd never really been inebriated. So we went out, we, we got drunk. And you know what? It changed my life. It, it didn't affect my two best friends, but you see, alcohol did something for me that nothing else had been able to do. And I know that was the start of my addiction right there because it enabled me to overcome my self-consciousness. That was the biggest thing, really. It enabled me to really be one of the guys and cut up with them. It enabled me to, uh, I thought, be able to relate to the girls. I'm not sure now whether it did. But alcohol did something for me that nothing else had been able to do. And so 
for the next 15 years, it was really a big part of my life. Uh, you know, it was, it was my social life. It's what I like to do socially. I didn't like to go out and do things socially if alcohol wasn't being served. I mean, it was my hobby. That's what I liked to do when I got off work was go drink beer with the guys. I mean, it's what I used to deal with stress and escape. It's what I used to uh, celebrate if things went bad. I mean, it's, it's what I used to uh, commiserate when things didn't go too well. So it was a big part of my life. Uh, in 1970, figure out how old I am by this, uh, when I was 33 years old, I became a Christian. And really, my life changed drastically at that point. It was really what I'd been looking for all my life. and I just sort, I sort of knew it immediately. And I was excited about the Christian life. And my, my Christian life was to spend at least an hour a day in a quiet time. I memorized chapters of Scripture. I read my Bible, prayed daily, fasted, read hundreds of books, went to all the seminars and conferences I could, went to Bill Gothard so many times I lost count. I witnessed enthusiastically. Uh, my wife didn't like to go out in public with me. I'd corner people in Baskin Robbins and witness to them while they were waiting on their ice cream cones. And my children didn't like to ride the car with me because I'd pick up a hitchhiker so I could have a captive audience. I was really excited about the Christian life. I had started my own brokerage company about that time. People had invested a half a million dollars in it. I was the CEO and the founder and controlling stockholder. I gave all that up. I went off to seminary to go into the pastorate to share the gospel and the good news with anybody that I could. I did everything I could to try to live the Christian life. You say, well, how'd that work out? Well, it didn't work. It really didn't. Uh, I got to the point in my, in my second church where I wasn't drinking, no uh, real horrible sin in my life. Uh, well, my wife and children didn't respect me. My marriage was a disaster. Um... My personal thought life was in shambles. And I came to the realization that all I had learned about living the Christian life was just not working for me. I saw myself as a total failure. And I left the ministry. I went back to being a stockbroker. And soon I began making more money than I ever made in my life. I was really doing extremely well on the outside. But I was dying on the inside because I saw myself as a complete failure. I felt like I'd failed God, I'd failed my wife, I'd failed my children, I'd failed the church that had sent me off to seminary and helped pay for it. And so I turned back to my old ways of dealing with my problems. You know what that was. I began to turn to alcohol to deal with the stress and the pain in my life. And in a short period of time, I became a full-fledged alcoholic. I mean, I could not stop. I wanted to stop. I did everything I knew to stop. Uh, you've got a list there uh, in your manual of, I think, of about 30 things that I tried. I still had a consistent quiet time, would be drunk at night. I studied my Bible. I fasted. I 
My pastor said, well, go out on visitation evangelism and get involved in other people's lives. I did that. Uh, my church, uh, probably one of the biggest churches in Alabama, one of the best churches, most evangelical churches, world missions-minded churches, uh, started a Christian 12-step program because of me. It's still going on to this day. They didn't know what to do with me. Well, you know, it may have helped some other people. It never helped me. Uh, I got in an accountability group with five friends who loved me, who cared for me. And you know, accountability is good, but it won't set you free, will it? Um, you know, they couldn't follow me around all the time. One guy tried it one night, and you know, I was jumping in cabs trying to escape him as he was following me around town. Um, I was watching the TV one evening, and they were interviewing Gloria Steinem, the women's feminist. And the interviewer said, uh, well, Gloria used to have a problem with overeating. She said, oh, I don't have that problem anymore. And he said, well, what did you do? And she says, oh, I don't keep food in the house. Well, you know, that's a creative solution, but it's far removed from freedom, isn't it? You know, that's the way, unfortunately, a lot of us try to deal with our problems, and I guess we don't know any better way. Um, I certainly tried it. I went to hundreds of AA meetings. I went through five sponsors, went to Christian counselors, Christian psychiatrists, secular psychologists, Christian psychologists, addictions counselor. I flew to New Jersey, spent three days with a specialist there, went to a secular treatment center, a Christian treatment center, read every book on addiction and alcoholism. I could, a healing of memory session, baptismal spirit session, casting out a demon session twice, public confession. That was a real bummer. Uh, Group therapy took the drug antabuse, which if you drink, on top of taking the drug antabuse, you get violently ill. I got violently ill twice. Called before the church discipline committee for being a drunk, the same one that sent me off to seminary. On and on. Why didn't any of these things work? I mean, you know, in and of themselves, none of these things are bad, right? But you know, if they are things that Mike Quarles is just doing, in his own strength, in his own resources, it's nothing but flesh, is it? You know, I was struggling, striving, straining to live the Christian life. And of course, you don't live the Christian life that way, do you? You live it by faith in Christ, in his finished work, and what he's done in you and for you. Well, and all of the people that ever tried to help me, and there were a lot of them. I knew lots of people. I'd been in the pastorate. I'd been to seminary. And so many of them really wanted to help me. They cared for me. But not one of those people ever came up to me and said, Mike, the problem is not you, but the lies that you're believing. That would have been good news. Nobody ever came up to me and said, Mike, the answer is not what you do, but what God has done on the cross through Christ. That would have been great news. But usually people come up to me and say, do this, don't do this, abstain from this, avoid this, refrain from this, restrain from doing this, and give you lots of things to do, right? Well, <clears throat> where did all this get me? Totally out of control, depressed, and suicidal. You know, I was like the prodigal son. I just wanted out of the pig pen. Uh, 
I, I remember sitting in my office thinking many times, I just like to be normal. I wasn't sure what normal meant, but I thought, you know, if God would just come to me and said, look, I'll make a deal with you. I, I'll let you be normal, show up for work, you know, do a decent job, go home at night. I would have taken it in a heartbeat. I got to the point, though, where I was so out of control that I got afraid to leave the house in the morning because I didn't know where I would end up at night. I was so out of control. I remember when I went to the uh, my second treatment center, a Christian treatment center, that the director there in the intake interview um, said, well, maybe someday you could go back into ministry. I, I couldn't even think about that. I mean, I had given up hope on being a decent Christian, much less being in ministry again. I mean, I had failed so badly, I'd fallen so far, it was just too painful to even consider that in what I'd done with my life. I sort of like uh, the story that uh, Jerry Clower, the Mississippi comedian, tells. Uh, I don't know if any of you here are familiar with Jerry. He, uh, he was a Christian, went to be with the Lord a few years ago. But he tells the story about he and uh, Marcel are out coon hunting one night. And they tree this uh, big coon up in the top of the tree. And so Marcel, his buddy, shinnies up the tree to get up there to shake it out. And, and everybody's down on the ground uh, hollering up at him. The dogs are barking and he's shaking the tree. And all of a su sudden he gets up there and he finds out it's not a coon. It's what Jerry calls a souped up wildcat, a lynx. And that thing gets after Marcel, and it is about to tear him up. He's screaming, and he's hollering down to Jerry. He said, this thing is killing me. He said, shoot, shoot. And Jerry hollers back up and says, I'm afraid to shoot. I might hit you. And he hollers back down and said, shoot up here amongst us. One of us has got to have some relief. Well, that's right where I was. But it's right where God wanted me. It was where I needed to be. You know, God's goal for the Christian is not to make us the most mature, strong, have-it-together people. God's goal is to bring us to the end of ourselves and our resources where we can trust Christ to be our life and live by faith. And you know, it's only when you've shot your last bullet, when you spent your last buck, that you're really ready to do business with God and do it His way. 2 Corinthians 1, 8, 9 puts it this way. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. We despaired of life. We had the sentence of death in our hearts. But that happened that we might rely not on ourselves but on God raises the dead. You know, there's no freedom without brokenness. Desperation is the key to revelation. Um, you see, freedom is really only available for those of us who are bankrupt and broken failures and can admit it. 
You know, the people who think they know what to do to live the Christian life, that they've got it all together, are not even in the line to receive grace. Um, you see, grace flows downhill. And it meets us at our point of need, our point of weakness, our point of failure. That's where grace meets us. Or we don't need it otherwise. About this time, my good friend, Charlie, came up to me and gave me these tapes that, here, listen to these, maybe they'll help you. Well, he was just like everybody else. He, he didn't... Uh, he didn't really think they'd help me. He'd given up on me. My pastor told me later, he says, I didn't know anything else to tell you. And that's the way everybody was. My, my wife and, and my best friend doubted that I was a Christian. For some reason, I never did. I, you know, but that's how bad it was. Well, when he gave me these tapes, I thought, you know, I've listened to some of these tapes before, and, and they really, and I really don't agree with his theology. And then the thought hit me. So wait a minute. Your theology ain't doing you much good. You know, uh, we like to tell people that if you know the truth and the truth will set you free, that if your theology is correct, you're going to be walking in freedom. You know, if you stop and think about it, that's that's encouraging. That's good news. I mean, because if you and I are struggling with an addiction, if we're defeated, if we're in some bondage we can't get out of, and, and it really is that if truth sets you free and lies keep you in bondage, then maybe we can choose to believe the truth and not believe those lies that have kept us in bondage. I mean, we can, God can work that in our lives and, and people can begin to do that and get free. So I decided I'd listen to those tapes with an open mind. And so, I began listening to those tapes and I remember one day, uh, <clears throat> my wife said to me, look, would you just get out of my face and uh, give me a little space? And so I'm driving up to Look out Mountain Tennessee from Birmingham. And I'm, I'm listening to these tapes and I'm, I'm listening to tape three by, uh, Bill Gillum, Victorious Christian Living. The tape is entitled, Co-Crucifixion is Past Tense. And he's teaching on Romans six. You know how it starts out. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. He says, wait a minute, I know what you're thinking. You know, you're thinking that that's just a, a positional truth. You know, that's just a kind of a judicial truth. That, that um, you know, that's just the way uh, God sees you. He says, I know. He says, you don't, um, you don't feel like you're dead to sin. You don't act like you're dead to sin. You don't even look like you're dead to sin. You say, well, that's just what God says about me. He says, wait a minute. What God says is the truth, regardless of how you feel. It's like the lights came on for me, and I understood the truth that 
old self was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. You say, was it that simple? Well, you know, it really wasn't that simple. It was at that point, but you know, I was over 50 years old when it happened. I had gone through such misery and grief and despair and bondage. It, it wasn't that easy and simple to get there for sure. You know, as I drove uh, on that day, the thought hit me, and I know, and I believe it's the truth, I'm convinced more than ever that it is today, is that you and I, as evangelical believers, have really done what we accuse the uh, liberals of doing. What do we accuse the liberals of doing? Basing their theology on their feelings or their experiences, right? Isn't that true? Well, we've done the same thing. I'll show you. How many here feel dead to sin? I guarantee you, nobody better raise their hand. You know, well, maybe, you know, in a great worship and praise service, you might, for a little while, feel dead to sin. But it doesn't last, does it? How many here, your experience tells you you're dead to sin? You see, because our experience and our feelings have such overwhelming evidence that we're not dead to sin, you end up like I did. I mean, you read it in the Bible, we died to sin. Well, you know, somehow that verse doesn't apply to me because I'm still sinning. Right? But it doesn't say that you died to sinning, but you died to the power of sin, and once you believe that truth, and once you accept it, then you can begin to walk in. Well, you see, we understand, I think, that we've got it down salvation pretty well. We know that Christ died for our sins. But do we know that we died with Christ? And whoever's died is, has been freed from sin that we are to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, there's really only one thing that keeps us in bondage. And that's believing lies. It's not enough just to uh, memorize Scripture, to spend hours in it. Um, that's a personal example. I had memorized Romans 6. Knew the whole chapter didn't do me any good because I knew the information of Romans 6, but I didn't know the truth. A big difference, isn't it? To really See, the only way really know truth is by revelation, spiritual revelation, right? We can know a lot of knowledge, a lot of scripture. Well, I remember going home and uh, sitting at my desk thinking, you know, nothing's really changed. You know, I'm uh, being investigated by the Presbytery, which I was at that time, ordained in a Presbyterian denomination for being a drunk. Everybody in town knows I'm a drunk. 
you know, I've been, I've lost my job. I don't have any income. I don't have any prospects for a job, any prospects for income. And then I had a weird thought. I thought, you know, I hope I don't get a job anytime soon. I just like to enjoy knowing that all I need to be free in Christ is my relationship with Him. I like to tell people that I really think that a good definition of freedom is learning that that's all you need. Because you see, if you and I think that we need anything else to be fulfilled, to be content, to be okay, then Satan can jerk that whenever he wants to. And you lose your peace, you lose your freedom, you lose your joy, and there's no victory. But if you know that, Satan can't touch that. Can he? You know, it was like that I had spent all of my life trying to get my act together. And God says, look, your act is not any good. What I think about your act is I crucified it on the cross. I don't want to improve you. I want to break you of your resources. I don't want to change you. I want you to exchange your life for Christ's life. And live by faith. I like what uh, my good friend uh, Steve McVeigh said, who's uh, written about, I guess, about three books on grace right now, Grace Walk and Grace Rules and Grace Land. He said, he said, all of my life I worked trying to make Jesus Lord. And then I learned I could just trust Him to be my life. I'm going to ask my wife if she'll come and... Uh, give you the other side of the story and uh, kind of tell you what she was going through and what the Lord did in her life at that time. Her uh, message isn't in the workbook, but... Um, It was even worse than he told us. But God is so faithful. He is just incredible. I was the total opposite of Mike. I was the goody-goody. I grew up. I grew up going to church, Sunday school, church camps, trying to be good all my life. I never heard the salvation gospel, though, until I was in my 20s even though I had been in church all of my life. So God really is faithful. And then as this story goes on, you'll see he just continued to be faithful and teach me more about him. 
I didn't learn about living free in Christ, the part that Mike was talking about, until I was in my 50s. And I'm still learning and will continue learning. When I met Mike, I was a young widow. I had a 10-year-old son. My husband had died after a three-and-a-half-year battle with cancer. We became Christians while he was sick, and so I knew that he was in heaven. And I thought at that time that surely I had been through the hardest thing you'll ever go through, and God had taught me all I would ever need to know. I knew Jesus so well as my Savior and as my Lord. A few years later, I met Mike at our church. His wife had left him and taken his, their children after he became a Christian. I fell in love with Mike's heart for Jesus. We seemed like we would be perfect for each other after what we had both been through. But you know what? That is only in the movies. They always live happily ever after. This was reality. We say we've been happily married for 12 years, but we'll have our 28th anniversary in May. <laughs> that's the truth of it. But we're on the good end of it, and that's even better. When Mike and I married back in 1973, he had just finished his first year of seminary, and I had to move from Birmingham with my security and all my friends and my church and everything and move over to Mississippi. In the first weeks of marriage, though, I realized that Mike did not know as much about being a Christian husband and father as I thought he should. I had really been spoiled, though, as a young widow. My father my brothers-in-law, my pastor, everyone was willing to help and take care of a young widow. And I, so I was very spoiled. And people took care of my house, my yard, my car, my finances. Here I moved to another state, and I expected Mike to be all of those men rolled into one. It was an impossible job for anybody. I thought I had really blown it. I had made a huge mistake. I had been better off as a widow. So I criticized him and nagged him and cried, anything to motivate him. But it never worked. All it did was make him mad. I had to get him to change. And then I thought, I am trapped. I cannot go back to Birmingham and leave this man. And I'm stuck in this marriage that I should not have gotten into. And we both wanted to have a good marriage. That was just our desire. But we were so frustrated because it was not working for us. Of course, we each thought it was the other one's fault. Sometimes after an argument, I would get in our car to leave. And then I would get at the end of the driveway and think, you will be killed if you get out of this driveway because you'll be out of God's will. And I would sit there and cry and get upset. And then I would go back in the house to start over. Mike accused me of having a packed bag mentality. We went to counselors on and off for five years, and they would try to help us, but my one counselor kept saying, Julia, you are so wishy-washy. Finally, she said, you need to make up your mind if you're going to stay in this marriage or not. I didn't have any grounds for getting out, but she said, you're like that wave in James where he likens a double-minded man like a wave that's tossed to and fro on the beach. And she said, that is, just, that is something that you just have got to decide and 
not be that way. You decide if you're going to stay married or not, or quit coming to me. So I took a day and just spent the day with the Lord to work through this and decide what I was going to do. I realized God is the same God who had gotten me through the years of my husband being sick, dying, being a widow. Surely this God could help me learn to live with this man that loved him. So I made a recommitment to God and to Mike to stay married no matter what. It was soon after that that Mike got out of the ministry and went back into business and we moved back to Birmingham. So I thought everything would be so much better now having all that pressure off of us. But he kept telling me that he felt like a failure for getting out of the ministry. So I just tried to encourage him and pump him up. Everything's wonderful. We're going to be fine. And then he said, well, do you mind if sometimes we have wine with dinner? Because since I'm out of the ministry now, I didn't care. That was all right. And so one day I bought a bottle of wine and poured us a glass of wine. A few days later I went to get the bottle to do it again and it was gone. I said, what happened to that bottle? He said, oh, there wasn't much left. I polished it off. I thought, we only had two glasses out of it. So that happened one more time and then I didn't buy it again. But then I started noticing cartons of beer in our refrigerator in the garage. And then they would be gone. I thought, what in the world is going on? But he would just make up some excuse for it. But then he started not coming home at night, or coming home in the middle of the night, drunk. Or he would call me and make up some story about why he couldn't come home, and I would just know he was lying. I would beg him, I would proposition him, I would just tell him anything, and he still would not come home. I got terrified. What in the world was happening? It was just like our world was unraveled. I was so confused and I was so frightened. I felt like I couldn't tell anybody. And Mike would be so upset the next morning after he would come in drunk during the night. He would just be so upset and apologize and say, I don't know what's happened, but it'll never happen again. So I started thinking it was my fault. All those years of nagging him and telling him what he ought to do and how he ought to be, of criticizing him and crying and just really being on his back all the time. I had driven him to drunkenness, I thought. So I decided I had to help him get out of this. And I couldn't talk to anybody. I was teaching two Bible studies and I was in a prayer group. But I would not have told any of those people what was happening. Because I didn't understand it. So how in the world could any of them understand? God did provide me some people, though. I would call the 700 Club counselors a lot, or I had a friend that I knew had been, had a trouble with um, drinking, and I would talk to her. Mike finally talked to our pastor and confided in him, and we went to some other counselors, and all of them would tell us to go to AA and Al-Anon. Well, I'd never heard of Al-Anon, but they got someone from the church to take me. And there I found other people in the same boat. I really appreciated the anonymity and the confidentiality there, and that those people understood. Unfortunately, we cannot say that for most prayer groups or groups in the church. I found in Al-Anon so many women, or men too, whose spouses were sober, but miserable and still difficult to live with. And that was very discouraging. But I decided if Mike got sober, then he would be all right. He would be different. But I learned at Al-Anon that you do not cause someone 
to drink. That is the choice that they make. That relieved my guilt a little bit, but I decided it was really my job to help him get sober. I tried so hard to please him. I took on his responsibilities. I really became a doormat for Mike. I lost my respect for myself. I thought I had been such a bad wife, though, that I deserved this, and I had to do anything that was necessary. I started thinking that God did not love Julia. Some of the other effects on me were I constantly begged God to show us what would get us free. Every morning I thought, this is the day. We're going to learn it today. I lived in such a state of anxiety. I was not only afraid of what was happening, but that it would never change. I was so afraid of people finding out. All the people that he had hired to work with him at his brokerage office were Christians. Most of his clients were Christians. I was so afraid of somebody finding out or people in our family. You know, 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And I would think I was doing that, but I'd pick it right back up and carry it myself. Our home was full of oppression and apprehension. We hardly ever laughed. I seemed to cry a lot. I began to lose hope. So I wore a mask. I was a performer. I should have shells of Academy Awards because I pulled it off good. I went to parties, to supper clubs, to any kind of function and made some excuse for Mike why he just couldn't make it tonight and he's so sorry. I never let on to anybody what was going on except the few people we had confided in. We went to church every Sunday together. And sometimes when we would stand there sharing a hymnal, I think, we're going to get struck by lightning. It was just awful just living this life, trying to act like who I wanted to be and hiding what was really going on inside. I was so full of fear, not only of other people knowing, but that it would never, never change. One of my worst fears was that Mike would kill somebody because he mainly rode around in his car drinking since he didn't have friends who drank. I was just so afraid he was going to kill somebody. God was really faithful in that, that because that happens. You read that in the paper so often. For a while, I became a hermit. I decided if I didn't leave the house, then I didn't have to go out and be a hypocrite. So one time I stayed in bed about three days. And then I thought, no, this really isn't any fun. So I would make myself get up and go back out. Because if you'd see people, they'd say, hey, how you doing? Fine, how are you? You know, you just, you just have to live how you, how you think you're supposed to be. And it's just so fake. I did a lot of crazy, crazy things. A lot of them are written about in our book. You'll have to get a copy of that, Freedom from Addiction. Things I never wanted anybody to know. I went in bars and places I had never knew existed. But I, you just, I was just as insane as he was. Mike will say that addiction is self-consciousness, self-awareness. Sometimes I thought I was going to drown in his selfishness. He bought new suits, new cars, anything to make himself look good and feel good. And I did without I took a little part-time job to help send my son to college. I had a victim mentality. If it'll help Mike, let's do it. Don't, don't worry with anything you may need. 
I lived on a roller coaster for eight years. We really had more good days than bad days. Mike did not drink often, but you never knew when it was going to be. I lived like I walked on eggshells, taking on his responsibilities, trying, just begging God to intervene, but trying not to cause any trouble or give him any excuse for drinking. I hung on to so many verses of Scripture. They were just like rocks that I would just stand on. Philippians 4, 6, God will complete the good work he has begun in you. Psalm 27, 13, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. And I would read that and think, I'm, a, I'm just, I'm going to believe this because I had no hope. Finally, I realized that there was nothing else that Mike could try. That list of 30 is incomplete. He tried everything anybody suggested. He really did not want to be the way that he was. But I realized that he had given up, and I had to give up too. After all those years, I was exhausted physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially. My son had graduated from Auburn University that someone was going to get married. And I thought, you know, someday they'll have children, and I really wanted to go in and be a sane grandmother. So I decided that one of us needed to be there for the children. And I was still sane enough that I could make that decision. So I made the decision at that time that I would have to tell Mike that he would have to leave if he could not quit drinking. That was in January of 1985. Now, I didn't mean divorce. I just meant not living together. When you come to that place, though, I had threatened that a lot over the years, but when you come to that place, you have to mean it. And you have to look at all of the consequences that will follow and be willing to accept those consequences. I determined that I couldn't worry about Mike anymore. I knew that if he really left, he could end up in a mission. He could end up dead on the streets of Birmingham. But I had done everything I could to prevent it, and I had not prevented it, and I had to give up. And I had to face that if that happened, that was, that was what was going to happen. I knew I'd have to sell my house and go to work to take care of myself, but all of that was still better than continuing to live in the insanity that we had been living in. You make that decision for yourself. You do not make it to make that person do something. You have to draw that line. It was one of the hardest things that I had ever done. After I told him, I gave him a few days to find a place to go. And in God's mercy, he heard about a Christian treatment center. At this point, he had already been to a treatment center. But he heard about a Christian treatment center in North Carolina. And he would go for two months. So he did, made the decision to do that. And the night before he left, I told him I didn't want him to call me or write me while he was gone. Just leave me alone. 
I thought this was the end of our marriage, but not divorce, just separation. But it was really the end of a dream of everything, with Bradley dying and then Mike leaving like this. With Mike gone, though, my stress level plummeted. I began enjoying coming home at night. I enjoyed being in my house and not having to worry that Mike was going to kill someone that night. I just started having a retreat, just me and Jesus. I would build a big fire and just sit there. I knew I, knew I needed to believe that God loved me. My life sure didn't look like he did, and I sure didn't feel like he did, but I had sung for years, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. So I decided to take God at his word. And I knew that Romans 8 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So I decided to believe God. Finally, I was able to imagine myself just curling up in Jesus' lap and letting him put his arms around me and just love me. It was just wonderful night after night doing that. And then I remembered something that had been one of my favorite verses for a long time. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. With my focus off of Mike, though, God began showing me not only His love, but he had me start looking at myself. Mike's sin had been so obvious that I really looked like the perfect Christian. I had sure tried hard to be for many years. I'd always thought I needed to be able to handle everything, with God's help, of course. But now I began seeing that I needed to come to the end of my resources, to give up on me, and to come to the end of myself. So I finally told God that I quit. Mike was his problem, his responsibility, and not mine. I think God had been waiting a long time for me to do that. One night I was reading scripture, and it just came so clear to me that God was not impressed at all with my outward actions. We know he looks at our heart. And I started seeing in my heart bitterness, unforgiveness, envy, as I was reading Galatians 5, starting in verse 19, of the deeds of the flesh, anger, jealousy, pride, I thought, I've got all of those. They're in my independent spirit. But as I read through that list, do you know what was right in the middle of all of those things I was guilty of? Drunkenness. I went, what? That's listed with those things that I'm guilty of? So with that, the Lord started showing me how much he had forgiven me for and started breaking down the wall I had around my heart that I might have to be willing to forgive Mike for his brokenness. I really didn't want to do that. It had taken so long to make that decision to make him leave. But I started praying Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you to will and do of his good pleasure. So I told God that I was willing to be 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 willing for him to work his good pleasure. 
And some of the willings slowly got knocked off. And I became more willing to, and even to talk with him on the phone. If he would call before that, I would just slam down the phone. Finally, I took a radical step of trusting God, and I baked him some cookies and sent them to him for Valentine's. Then he would call me, and I would talk to him. And I could tell that he was beginning to change. But that really scared me, because I thought, oh, no, I've really got to be willing to be willing. But finally, the end of March, I agreed to let him come back home. That was in 1985. When he got home, he really was different. He was interested in me and my opinion. He didn't try to force his opinion or thoughts on me. He immediately started counseling other people with addictions. So my dear brother-in-law that I had gone to work for in a part-time job at his ministry offered Mike office space. So now I'm working for Mike and for Dan. I thought, God, you've got some sense of humor doing this. But, of course, Mike wasn't making much income just doing this little counseling. So Mrs. Super Responsibility went in and got her real estate license so I could start selling houses and help us out financially. I was still performing for God and for Mike, but things were really a lot better than they had ever been. My confidence now was in God and not in Mike. And it's a good thing because Mike started drinking again every now and then. He became more miserable than ever. And this went on for three and a half years. As he got more and more depressed about it, I worked harder and harder. We had the neatest, cleanest house and yard in town. And I worked real hard on my business because work was my therapy and my escape. After a very horrible night is when I told him to get out of my face for a few days and he made that drive to Lookout Mountain where he listened to those tapes. He had not been gone a few hours in the phone line, and I said, give me three days. I don't want to see you or hear from you. And the phone rang, and it was Mike, Julia, I'm free, I'm free. I just slammed the phone. He called right back, please listen, I'm free. I slammed the phone. The next time he called, I said, I will talk to you in three days. I don't want to hear it. So three days later, he came home. And he was radically changed. And praise the Lord, has never been the same since. He was so different. He was at peace with himself and with God. He was so full of joy. I just couldn't understand what could have happened to him. So I finally got the tapes and started listening to him. And I started hearing teaching that I had never heard before. Like the fact that God loved and accepted me just because I'm his child. I don't have to perform to stay in good with God. That God's love is unconditional. At that time I had been a Christian. He had been my Savior and my Lord for 22 years. And I started learning that he is my life. I started learning that God didn't want to just save me. He wanted to live his life in me and through me. It was almost too good to be true. And as I started learning more about this, my life started changing too. Our home changed. We started having people over to listen to tapes and watch videos. We started laughing. It was fun to be in our home and to be around us. We were enjoying it even. The cloud was lifted and joy was restored there. The next year, Mike was invited to go on staff with Grace Ministries in Atlanta. 
I was elated. Guess who lived in Atlanta? My son and his wife and our grandbaby. I couldn't pack up and get over there quickly enough. Now, this grandbaby is 12 years old and she has three little brothers. And Mike's daughter has moved there and has two little girls. These are my grandchildren. This is my grandmother necklace. But God has just so blessed us to live close to these grandchildren, to be a part of their lives, and to be able to extend grace and love to them, to have this blessing that we came real close to missing out on. Sometimes we think, why did it take us so long to get free, to understand who we are, to know our identity? I know, though, that God wants to bring us all to the end of ourselves, to the end of our resources, even people like me that think they are good. When we look back over those years, there's just so much that we learned. God is just continuing to teach me, like I said, and we both really say that it was worth it to go through what we did, to know him like we know him, and to have the marriage that we do now. So many of the things that I learned, I've mentioned. One of the big things is acceptance, like I said, that God loves me and accepts me just because I'm his child. Another, I see I had such a wrong concept, a warped view of God and his character. To think that he didn't love me showed me how deceived I was. I thought he was a stern judge, not a loving father. I didn't understand my identity as a child of God. We have bookmarks that are on the book table that have the Who Am I bookmark. Many of you might have seen those, but we have them there. 33 verses on being accepted and secure and significant, and that's just a few of them out of Scripture. But I'll be sure and see those on the book table. I read my Bible, but I didn't believe it for me. It was for other people. I was so deceived because of my feelings and because of my circumstances. And I learned I didn't have to perform to stay in good with God. God is not interested in strengthening anybody's flesh. All flesh is bad to him. Bill Gillen says it all stinks, whether it's good or bad flesh. God wanted to exchange his life with my life. And I never knew about Satan and the warfare and what a deceiver that he was. Now I know it wasn't me thinking that God didn't love me. It wasn't me thinking that I deserved this, that I wasn't any good. It was Satan putting those thoughts there. I didn't know I was believing lies about myself and about God. I'm learning to take thoughts captive, to see if what I'm thinking is from God or from the enemy. I learned that when we set a goal, like I had a goal for Mike to get sober, when you set any kind of goal, and it involves someone else's cooperation to happen, it is doomed. Those need to be desires and not goals. We set goals for things that only involve ourselves. One of my biggest lessons is about forgiveness. That was excellent. What's already been said on it in some of the sessions today. And not just forgiving someone for what they did, but for its effects on you, how it made you feel about yourself. If I hadn't really done that, I couldn't stand up here and give this talk. It would show in my face how I felt about it or how Mike had made me feel. Really for both of us, if we had not really done forgiving from our heart. I learned that God does not expect anyone, a wife, a husband, a parent, to put up with ungodly, sinful behavior. 
We get in God's way when we are enabling somebody. Codependents and enablers do not help anybody. Love sometimes means saying no. Some love is very tough. And when you take on someone else's responsibilities, all you do is make them more irresponsible. During those years, like I said, I lost hope. Even though Romans 15, 13 says God is a God of hope. I was in darkness. I was in bondage to performing and to performing well, to making a good appearance. John 8, 12 says that God is light and there's no darkness in him and we are to live in the light. Psalm 18:28b says, My God turned my darkness into light. Where are you? Are you living in the light of God and his word? Or are you walking in darkness and in bondage? I like the symbolism of a lighthouse to remind us there's so many verses about Jesus being the light. And you know, when a ship is coming into harbor, the pilot looks for that light in that lighthouse. So he will make safe harbor. And Jesus is so much more than a lighthouse, but I just like what it represents when I see this. Let Jesus and the light of his word and his truth be your lighthouse. You don't have to stay in your darkness and deception. Remember, Christ died not only to save you, but so you can live in freedom and walk in truth. He is faithful. Psalm 50:15 says, Call upon me in your time of trouble. I will rescue you, and you will give me the glory. So to God be the glory. Thank you.